Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am doing a special edition. I am joined by Jason Eberl and George Dunn, professors of philosophy, who have authored a book the philosophy of Christopher Nolan in the series The Philosophy of Pop Culture over at Lexington Press and who will be joining me in a discussion of several important themes in the films of Christopher Nolan and also a few specific movies. Well, first of all, hello guys. Please introduce yourselves. Great. Thank you, Titus. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast with you and look forward to our discussion. I'm Jason Ebrill. I'm the chair for medical ethics and professor of philosophy at Marion University, Indianapolis. Primarily teach ethics to medical students. I also teach undergraduate philosophy. Edited a few books in this philosophy and pop culture genre on Star Wars, Star Trek. Along with George, we did a book on the TV show Sons of Anarchy, and most recently Nolan, written for several other books in this genre. Not all on sci-fi, but mostly on sci-fi. When I'm not doing philosophy and pop culture, my philosophical interests are medical ethics, medieval philosophy, particularly the thought of the 13th century philosopher and theologian Thomas Aquinas, and metaphysics and the different theories of human nature and the mind-body relationship. I'm George Dunn. Most recently, I've been teaching at the University of Indianapolis and at the Ningbo Institute of Technology in China. Like Jason, I've edited a number of books dealing with philosophy and pop culture. I think I think I have six so far. Two collaborations with Jason, the Sons of Anarchy book and then Philosophy of Christopher Nolan. When I'm not doing philosophy and pop culture, my main interests are in social and political philosophy, moral philosophy, and various figures in the history of philosophy. That sounds fairly impressive, and I'm really pleased to have heard about the series of books you are doing. I take popular culture very seriously and have a background in philosophy, but of course I've neither written books nor am a professor. You've mentioned in discussions before that outside of your books you've also taught courses together on philosophy and pop culture. Still about that? Yeah, George and I used to teach together at a university here in Indianapolis. It's called IUPUI. It's a combined campus of Indiana University and Purdue University in Indianapolis. And we developed a summer course that we taught eight times, I think. I think. Yeah. yeah, I think eight times together called Philosophy Through Pop Culture. It was an upper-level philosophy course where we had students reading primary texts in philosophy, everything from Plato through Nietzsche. And we did this course in the summer because you had three hours and 15-minute time slots to show a film or an episode of Star Trek, Sons of Anarchy, or The Simpsons, and then have some discussion in class and related back to the assigned reading. It was a really interesting class. Uh, First of all, it's fun to co-teach with George because we have different interests in the history of philosophy and philosophical areas, but our teaching styles meshed pretty well and similar love for various uh, pop culture media. Although when it came to music, George had to do the Bob Dylan night while I did the Metallica night. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, our work on Christopher Nolan kind of grew out of that class because one of the movies that kind of became a staple of the class was Memento. Both Jason and I were great fans of that movie and big fans of Christopher Nolan. I think we went to see Dark Knight when it first came out, and then we went out for drinks, spent a couple hours just talking about all of the philosophical themes that we noticed in that movie, decided, well, we have to incorporate that in our course. You know, we started thinking about doing this book. The book is an edited collection of essays written by a number of different philosophers and film theorists covering the whole panoply of Nolan's work. 
George has one essay he wrote and then another he co-authored in there. I have one essay I wrote on Memento, and I'll talk a little bit about that essay. But the nice thing about the book is readers can kind of jump around and read about different films that they like. If you know, they want to read about Insomnia or Interstellar and so on. It's not a simple cover-to-cover -cover read, and you get a lot of different varied perspectives. Different films, also different topics. So just in case you're interested, the book is divided into four parts. Each part has four chapters. First part is moral philosophy. That's where Jason's essay and my two essays appear. And then part two, politics and culture. Part three, epistemology and metaphysics. And then part four, time and selfhood. So there's a lot of different philosophical themes that are covered in the book. I'm pleased to host a conversation on this, give people a taste of what the class must have been like and, of course, what the book is like. So how about we start off with Memento, then? Yeah, as George mentioned, the uh, first part of the book deals with moral philosophy. It's in that context that I wrote my chapter on Memento. It's hard to talk about these films without spoilers, so I'll just put out a general spoiler alert for listeners. Yeah, um, this is going to be an in-depth discussion, so that's par for the course. Just as an introduction to Memento, this was the movie that made Christopher Nolan famous, first of all on the art movie circuit. It was a hit at Sundance in 2000. It was his first studio movie with professional actors and crew. He made it on a shoestring. It uh, wowed audiences because the action isn't shown in chronological order. There are in fact two timelines, one of which goes forward and one of which goes backward, which are intercut up to the very end. This was a great poetic conceit and it suggested that Nolan was going to be interested in developing these kinds of conceits to surprise an audience and force people to pay more attention than the linear storytelling of Hollywood typically requires. So tell us about your essay, Jason. Yeah, thanks. Just one quick comment on the Nolan style. Of course, that's a style that runs through most of his film. Uh, even the most recent film, Dunkirk, plays with time. With Some of that does have an impact on the topic of my essay, which is the sense of, of selfhood. So the main character, Leonard Shelby, suffers from enterograde amnesia. Basically, he can't form new memories. So he remembers his life all the way up until he and his wife were violently attacked. But then after that, he can't form new memories. In the attack, his wife was raped, and he thinks that she was murdered in that attack. The truth is she actually died later on. He thought that there were two assailants, one of whom he shot and killed the other, who got away. And he later starts piecing together various facts about this other attacker. He gets his hand on a police file, or at least a partial file, and he learns that the assailant's name is John or James G., he tattoos important facts on his body to remember his moral mission, his raison d'etre, his reason for being, is to find John G. and kill him. Because John G., as one of his tattoos says, raped and murdered my wife. And so we have this initial problem of Leonard's self-identity. How can he form a sense of his own self when he can't form consistent memories across time? A lot of people think of John Locke. John Locke, writing in the 17th century, said that to be a person is to be a being who has a continuity of self-consciousness, a continuity of conscious experience connected through our memories. So when I see a picture of myself at the age of five, I believe that's me, not only because it physically resembles me, changed quite a bit since I was five, but I have some memory of that five-year-old's life. I might remember the circumstances in which that picture was taken, and that kind of connects me to that five-year-old. 
Leonard doesn't have that, right? So he needs something different to create the continuity of his selfhood, this moral mission he's put for himself, this revenge mission. So um, through a psychiatric condition, Nolan manages to give you an almost perfect version of a man who's literally stuck in the past. That's There's exactly right. Everything is truly new for him, and therefore nothing is new for him, because it cannot become old. That's exactly right. There's a great scene in the film he hires a prostitute, not for sexual purposes, but he wants to create a tableau using some of his wife's belongings he still has. And he wants to recreate basically the last night that he remembers his wife, which is the night before she died. The scene concludes, he kicks the prostitute out, he gathers his wife's things and burns them up. There's a constant soliloquy, and he's saying, I probably burned tons of your stuff over the years. And then he says, I can't remember to forget you. That line's always struck me in line with what you just said. He's stuck in the past. He can't move forward. Even if he didn't have the memory condition, people who are revenge-driven are often stuck in the past. Yep, exactly. That's the deep problem Nolan is getting at through this somehow more believable nowadays psychiatric condition. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of authority of science that he uses in this case. But of course, this is also tied up in another way with poetry, not just because this guy manufactures scenes, right, like a painter or a filmmaker would with the photograph, but also because he believes in what he sees. He, uh, the part of him that's suspicious and the part of him that's utterly gullible are in a shocking way separated and he believes everything he sees. Yeah, that's what allows him then to create this moral dilemma where he sets himself up to kill the wrong John G on purpose. The huge plot twist in the film is that there's this other character, Teddy. You're kind of unsure of Teddy's motives. Teddy seems to be helping him, but both Leonard and the audience are rightfully suspicious of Teddy. And at the end, Leonard realizes what Teddy's real name is, is John Edward Gamble. He says to himself, why don't I just make you my John G? Writes down Teddy's license plate and then goes, has tattooed on him the fact that John G, that's his license plate number. That eventually leads him back around to Teddy and he kills him. And so one of the things I'm interested in in my essay is this moral responsibility. On the one hand, when Leonard shoots Teddy, he has every reason to believe that Teddy is John G. And so that would seem to make Leonard innocent. Leonard believes he's killing the right guy, assuming that the revenge killing is justified. On the other hand, Leonard arguably set himself up to do that. If we go in John Locke, it's actually not the same self because there's no continuity of conscious memory. Yep. And so that's where I turn to Aristotle. For Aristotle, what's more important to my existence as a person is the moral continuity of my character. And so I ultimately hold Leonard responsible because he's the type of person who would set himself up to kill the wrong John G. Yep. And right, that so this is change. Aristotle's yeah. Ethics Book 3. What actions are voluntary, what actions are involuntary, what actions are non-voluntary. Aristotle there digs through how do people set themselves up that they end up where they no longer have any good choices. Mm-hmm. And, and that's to some extent even uh, in Aristotle a commentary on tragedy, which is also what Christopher Nolan is doing here, right? Again, he's using the authority of science to set you up as an audience to take tragedy seriously. Again, what does it mean to be guilty and not guilty at the same time? Yeah, very much so. Leonard is a tragic hero in as much as we can have one anymore. Right, and that leads to all these anti-heroes that we encounter throughout his films. So that sums up the thesis of my essay. 
One last note about this guy. He is trying to turn his mind into his body. He is tattooing right, speeches yeah. on his body in the sense that seeing is believing. His mind mm -hmm. is in a certain sense opaque to him, so he tries to make it transparent. But it turns out that that's not an innocent endeavor, that he's not mm -hmm. just a truth seeker. That actually is, is another interesting thing that's going on in the movie, that within the philosophy of mind, there's been some work done in the last decade or so on the idea of extended mind. Our mind is not simply located inside our head, but various artifacts or things in our environment, insofar as they are instruments of cognition, insofar as we use them to think or use them to solve cognitive problems, they can be considered an extension of our mind. I think that thesis is very well illustrated with the character of Leonard Shelby, because he cannot store memories internally, and so he has to store them bits of paper or tattoos, and the medium on which he stores the memory is related to how important the memory is. Some things are more ephemeral, and so he might write himself a note. Some things are more important in terms of his mission, and so they'll become tattoos. His mind is something that he wears on his body and also is inscribed in these various artifacts that he produces and carries around with him. You know, I just want to pick up on a word that George just said, artifacts. Because part of what he tattoos on him are putative facts mm -hmm. about John G. But they are artifacts. Mm -hmm. They are created by his mind. Part of what allows Leonard to be able to set up Teddy to kill him is the fact that Leonard implicitly trusts his own self and doesn't realize that he could engage in a conscious act of deceiving his own self. Yep. So he trusts yep. what he tattoos on his body because these are facts that he, Leonard, has discovered. And there's an interesting little clue to the audience about this. There's a vacillation between what Teddy's actual license plate letters are and what Leonard tattoos. There's a number one and there's an I. Leonard writes down and tattoos the opposite. But it doesn't matter. In the end, he's he likes still a challenge, that right? Yeah. Even his recording of facts, he's going to mess things up a little bit. Mm -hmm. yeah. yep. There's an interesting conversation that takes place between Leonard and Teddy about the nature of memory and about the unreliability of memory. Yeah. With Leonard insisting that his tattoos and his artifacts, because they are something solid, have a higher degree of reliability than the memories that we store in our heads, which are also constructs. They're as much artifacts as Leonard's tattoos or the notes that he writes to yeah. himself, but we tend to take them as absolutely reliable. Mm -hmm. Yes, so this guy becomes so, so self-deluded so, because he doesn't want to accept at any level that right. self-delusion yeah. is a real problem. He yeah. wants to so, find so, something that's truly certain because he just can't deal with uncertainty when, when right, it becomes an right. existential problem for him. This starts as a justice problem that mm -hmm. gradually turns into how is it even possible for people to find justice? It's not mm -hmm. an accident that all of this takes on the wrong part of town, right? Only the ugly <laughs> side of L.A. is ever on display here. Mm -hmm. Nobody who's ever trustworthy, no public institutions are available. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. uh, and, and so memory does become a personal problem. Right. And of course, the theme that comes up here is just the fictional nature of the narratives that we construct of our lives. Jason touches on in his essay that we construct these narratives in order to give our lives meaning. And the meaning of our lives are typically ordered around what we take to be our telos, Greek word, meaning our purpose, our end, the goals that we're seeking. Leonard is setting himself up for real crisis because if he no longer has a John G, if this quest for revenge ever should be totally consummated, he has no life. He has nothing to give his life meaning. Exactly. Yeah, because... Every fact he has tattooed now will always leave him back to Teddy 
and Teddy's dead. So, yeah. so he's either going to set up a new poetic cycle of invention and then a political cycle of revenge, or it's over. This thing that starts as a problem of justice very quickly degenerates because this guy is truly alone. That suggests that maybe there is a really deep problem here. That what if there's a difference between getting justice and getting self-knowledge? Mm-hmm. The more he wants to fight against self-knowledge, the more he forces himself to seek revenge. But of course, o- all the truth that he can learn about revenge is that he should have died the night he was attacked, <laughs> right? right? That's mm-hmm. when it would be over. That moment would finally be consummated and it would be over with for him. So much for Memento. Uh, let's move on to The Dark Knight. You have had long conversations about this. This was the first superhero movie to announce to American and worldwide audiences that this was actually a serious genre, that it was available mm-hmm. to real artists and it was available to people who wanted to think seriously about problems of good and evil and justice within mm-hmm. what used to be a kind of childish comic book. Even the name right. is derisive. Mm-hmm. So yes. uh, tell us about your uh, essay. Well, the essay that I have in the book only touches on The Dark Knight briefly. But the main theme of my first essay in the book is René Girard's mimetic theory and how that can shed some light on Christopher Nolan's films. So let me say a little bit about who René Girard is, and then I'll say something about how we can apply this to The Dark Knight. René Girard is a scholar who was at Stanford. He died just last year. And what he's best known for his theory of mimetic desire. Essentially what Girard claims is that our desires are not spontaneous, that we learn to desire certain things by imitating models. And hence, he refers to desire as mimetic, that it arises from imitation rather than something that arises just spontaneously from the deep recesses of our subjectivity. Those who we model our desires after, according to Girard, often will become our rivals. Because what happens is that our desires will converge on the same thing. So two men will want the same woman, or two people may want the same job. Yes. If it's something that is scarce, if it's something that cannot be shared, then those two individuals who are imitating each other's desires, they'll become rivals. Jordan thinks what frequently happens, the rivalry can intensify to the point where the object over which the rivals are competing just drops out of the picture. And the rivalry itself becomes the overriding concern. In other words, the concern is no longer obtaining the object at the expense of the rival. The concern is simply prevailing over the rival. And this is a theme that I think we see in a number of Nolan's movies, starting with his early movie following. It's very, very present in his movie, The Prestige, which is about a rivalry between two magicians. Also, Insomnia, where you have two individuals. One is a police detective. The other is a murderer who's eluding the law. And yet they become locked into this kind of relationship where they become almost doubles of each other. That's another one of George's claims, that when people enter into these rivalries, they become what he calls mimetic doubles, almost like yeah. doppelgangers. So, Girard's book, Mensonge Romantique et Verité Romanesque, The Romantic Lie and the Truth in the Novel, is right. uh, expounds this theory through commentaries on uh, Cervantes' Don Quixote, on Le Rouge et le Noir, uh, Stendhal's Red and Black, on Dostoevsky, right. and then uh, on uh, Marcel Proust. Marcel Proust, yes. 
it's a great commentary that's both provocative and very detailed so that you can verify it against the story and which of course I guess we all recommend it has none of academic jargon but it is incredibly thoughtful so it, it certainly <coughs> deserves a wider audience so as I said, this is a theme that we see in a number of Nolan's early movies, and it's very much present in The Dark Knight, where the Batman and the Joker become rivals. There's a scene at the police precinct where the Batman is interrogating the Joker. The Batman says, well, why do you want to kill me? Joker says, kill you. I need you. You complete me. Joker understands that he is locked into this dependent relationship with Batman. And it's yeah, a kind of yeah. reciprocal relationship. So and I think Gerard would characterize it as based on mimesis, where so, each becomes kind of a distorted mirror of the other. Yeah, and there is a question in the movie, Dark Knight, who does it really refer to? There are three mm-hmm. candidates, but Batman and the and Joker turn out to be the two big contenders for that title. Right. Girard's theory is meant to explain to a large extent desire and with it also hatred. It's supposed mm-hmm. to explain how striving moves from a neurotic longing for something to strife, to rivalry. Mm-hmm. That's right, exactly. And, and how competition can get out of hand. It's the opposite of a dialectical spiral, or it's a dialectical spiral that is headed for tragedy. Exactly. So the phrase that Girard uses in one of his later writings is escalation to extremes. Yep. A big part of Girard's theory is actually very Christian. It's talking about people who are looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> right? They're looking well, exactly, for satisfaction yeah. that they cannot get from the object they yeah, This would be the Augustinian element Mm -hmm. of Gerard's. So Augustine claims that human beings are motivated by a desire for a completeness that we can only receive in relationship to God. So when Joker says to Batman, you complete me, essentially he's setting Batman up as a kind of idol. Even though he's on a rivalry with Batman, ostensibly he hates Batman, ostensibly they're enemies. The truth is revealed that Batman is actually his god. Of course, Gerard would say that that's a false idol because the only true enduring satisfaction we can receive is in relationship to the transcendent God. Rather than seek love in the right place, rather than go after true satisfaction, we end up idolizing other people. We idolize the other. We want to we want to participate in the being of the other because we feel like we have a de- deficit of being on our own. And we look to what the other possesses or what the other desires, and we imitate that in hopes that that can be a way in which we can partake of what we take to be the superior being of the other. Exactly. And, and we see that early in the film where you have the ordinary Gotham citizens mm-hmm. who are dressing up like Batman right. in hockey pads and trying to take down criminals. Mm-hmm. And Batman, of course, chastises them for that, and one of them ends up suffering as a result. Not from Batman, but Joker. To bring another thinker, I mean, that reminds me then of Immanuel Kant and the notion of heteronymous versus autonomous mm-hmm. willing. Do I externalize the authoritative source of the moral law for me? Or do I internalize it and give the moral law to myself? Again, it's not a subjectivism where I'm creating morality for myself, but that I acknowledge the objective moral order of the universe and self-legislate myself to do that. Right, for Kant, autonomy or giving the law for oneself is the work of rationality. Right. Getting the law from without, accepting it at some level in being an act of obedience, it is irrational. Mm-hmm. Right. And of right. course, Joker is the sort of dark twist on that where he wants to introduce a little anarchy. So he's also a law unto himself. 
but it's a lawlessness unto himself, let's say. Uh, <laughs> yes, but Joker says that he is bringing a kind of philosophical revelation. He says that he has learned something that other people now need to learn. To some extent, he wants to be a teacher of Batman. Joker's typical phrase is, I'm not a monster, I'm just ahead of the curve. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Right. Kind of like you get kind of like Nietzsche's prophet who comes and declares that God is dead and then realizes, oh wait, it's too soon for you all to hear this. <laughs> yep. Yeah. There's another interesting Kantian wrinkle about Joker. For Immanuel Kant, to act as a truly autonomous person is to do the virtuous thing simply because it's virtuous. To do one's duty simply for the sake of duty. The Nike logo is, if it feels good, just do it. With Kant, it's right, the opposite. Right. If it feels good, don't do it. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. For Kant, if I do my duty because I expect some kind of reward, if I do my duty because it's the path of least resistance, if I do my duty just because I'm in the habit or I'm just not creative enough to think of anything else to do, or even out of then, then I, I, I may have done the right thing, and, and maybe my actions are commendable, but my moral character isn't really virtuous. Now, the interesting thing is that Joker, in many ways, seems to satisfy the conditions of Kantian autonomy. So what is Joker's motivation? I mean, that's one of the big mysteries in The Dark Knight. He repeatedly says that he's not a schemer, that he thinks that Gotham needs a better class of criminals because these mob bosses, they're only interested in tawdry things like wealth and status. Well, if the Joker is not interested in, well, the usual fruits of criminal activity, what is he interested in? He would seem to satisfy the conditions for what Kant calls diabolical evil, which is where you oppose the moral law, not for the sake of satisfying any inclination, not for the sake of pleasure or anything other than simply for the sake of wickedness itself. Now, whether that really describes Joker is another question, because if we look at it through the Girardian lens, we could see Joker is bound up in this rivalry with Batman, and he is hardly autonomous in that respect. But yeah. he certainly thinks he's a notch above the rest of the criminal element. Oh, yeah, sure. That's, that's fairly easily explained, right? The problem he sees with the criminals of Gotham is that they think that the relationship between money and fear is that fear gets you money. Fear mm -hmm. is a means to an end. Whereas with him, it's the other way around. Money, power, any organizational principle is merely a means to a different end that's somehow tied up with fear. It's tied up with sowing chaos. Yep. I mean, he, he describes himself as an agent chaos, and he, he makes a very telling remark when he's in the hospital room with Harvey Dent. Yep. Chaos is fair. Yep. In society, we have the social order, which is hierarchical, so that if someone is gunned down on the wrong side of town in a drive-by shooting, that's normal. If a truckload of soldiers are blown up, that's normal, because these are the people who our society regards as expendable. If someone kills the mayor, well, everybody goes crazy. Yeah, places where violence is all right and places where violence is forbidden. Precisely. And, that, and, and the distinction and the seems to be arbitrary. Says, yeah. And the joke says chaos is fair. In a situation of chaos, we're all equally vulnerable. All of those hierarchies collapse and we have a situation of undifferentiation where the good citizens of Gotham are in the same boat, almost literally, <laughs> as the criminal element. What makes the difference, it's arbitrary, but the causal factor of the difference is that where violence happens is in place of need and where fear rules. In ordered society, where at least people's basic needs are taken care of and there's no inherent fear of the other, if you're on the right side of the track, so to speak. And what Joker does when he, as George alluded to, puts the citizens of Gotham and the criminals of Gotham on these two boats and plays his little logic game with them. It's social experiment. He calls social it. experiment, that's right. It's a short nudge. 
as soon as you've introduced fear, as soon as you've introduced a threat to any basic necessity of life, boom. We're in the Hobbesian state of nature. Mm -hmm. He's stripping off the veneer. And if we want to think of Joker as a Socratic type, he's the gadfly who's mm -hmm. basically saying, look, citizens of Gotham, i.e. citizens of Athens, you have this veneer of justice, this veneer of goodness. You think you know truth. You don't really. And he just takes, obviously, more extremes than Socrates to, show, to try and show it to them. <laughs> yep, this does seem like a Greek thing, and certainly Nolan has a great love of tragedy that shows up, especially, but not exclusively, in his Batman movies, and he has talked about it in interviews, and I guess you could call that benefits of a classical education. But it somehow goes back before Socrates, right? It's, in that sense, way more Heraclitean. Joker says he has had an insight into being. It is not mm. cosmos, it is not order, of right. which the city could be a image. It's chaos. That's why he needs Batman to complete him. The completeness of being is contrary, is oppositions, <laughs> right? right? Exactly. And talks about his own learning process. Unrequired, he gives two contradictory statements about his origin, about why he's mutilated, to be specific. One has to do with a wife, the other has to do with a father. They're both family tragedies. The thing that's common as he changes his stories that our lives, blades are involved. He likes to kill with a knife or something like that. It's about cutting to the core. The other thing that remains constant in the two stories about his origins is that something happened in the world that changed him. That he saw a mutilated world and that seeing, which is a knowing, mutilated him in return. He is simply adequate to being in a way nobody is in Gotham except possibly Batman. Batman and Joker do have a lot in common in as much as they think about fear as the basis of rule. In mm -hmm. Batman Begins, you get this incredibly long study in assassination and fear. Then Batman at some point just says, I want them to feel the fear that I have in me. Mm -hmm. Like Joker yeah. says that I saw something outside of me in the world that made my inside different. Batman mm -hmm. is the other way around. The way he puts it is I have something inside of me that I want to bring outside of me. You can't stop crime or you can't start crime if all you're looking for is money. You've got to scare the daylights out of people. And this is also what Alfred says to him. So yeah. when he says some men just want to see the world burn. Right, if you right. scare people enough, fearful people who are basically conformists, who depend on society, right? Who believes in property as much as a thief? You know, he may be disagreeing with the distribution of property, but he's the most zealous acquisitor there is. But so with the thieves of Gotham, they really are parasites of the social order because they believe in the conventions. But in well, their fearfulness, the they turn to that I, mean, I mean, they're simply part of the social order. They're schemers. Yep, exactly. I mean, they're essentially no different than the good citizens of Gotham. The only ones who are different are Joker and Batman. Yep. Because they're motivated by something other than just the desire for gain or status. They've somehow transcended that. You know, exactly. you were mentioning Joker's two origin stories. Yes. And both have to do with how he got his scars. There's another origin story implied, and again, this takes place in the interrogation room. Joker essentially says to Batman, you've changed everything. There's no going back. What would I do without you? Go back to ripping off mob dealers. We get right there an indication of what Joker had been doing. He had just been a petty criminal, presumably just out of, out of acquisitive desire like any other criminal. Then Batman comes along, and Joker is discerning enough to see that this is something new. Again, this goes back to Gerard. Where does Joker come from? He is the mimetic double of Batman. Joker sees someone who is out there operating in a self-sacrificial mode on behalf of the good. Joker becomes the mimetic double of Batman on behalf of evil. 
yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Right? So what Batman introduces into Gotham is this question, why do you obey the laws? Mm -hmm. To the extent that you could give a reasonable answer to that, it implies that it's a choice. Mm -hmm. What Batman wants to do to deal with the problem of crime and corruption is make it so that people who think about disobeying the law go insane with fear. Right. That's how this becomes an education for Joker. In witnessing the terror by which justice is installed, what mm -hmm. he learns about is terror. I, and I he think tries that's to right. sow it himself, right? Right. There are actually two emotions that Batman sets out to instill. One is fear. Mm -hmm. The other is hope. Sure. Yeah. Joker is out there trying to undermine that hope that Batman has created. The hope that the good can actually prevail. Batman realizes in the Dark Knight that although he wants to instill hope, he mm. can't be the agent of hope. Right. Hence, Harvey Dent. Right, exactly. And the importance, which of course is its own little mimetic rivalry vis-a-vis -vis Rachel within <laughs> the film. Yes. This leads to, to bring it back to one of the through themes of Nolan's work, the abnegation of the self. At the end of the film, Harvey Dent has lost his moral identity in becoming Two-Face, and in so doing, has proven Joker's point. And Batman takes on the mantle of the Dark Knight, as opposed to Dent's White Knight, in order to keep Joker from winning. He negates his own self-identity, any hope yep. that he has for being the hero. Rachel predicted at the end of Batman Begins, who can never actually take off the mask, because yep. the mask yep. is his reality now. So you see that Batman and Joker fight in fighting over the soul of Gotham over two specific mm -hmm. individuals, right, who are both involved in the law. Harvey Dent and Rachel Dawes. Mm -hmm. With right. both of them, there's threatening and saving. Right. And But the way Joker breaks Harvey Dent, the scene that leads up to saying chaos is fair, then you see what that means to Harvey Dent. Leave it to chance up until he doesn't get what he wants. And then he doesn't leave it to chance anymore. Harvey right. Dent is a counterfeiter of his own randomness. Every time he flips a coin, he knows what he wants. And if he doesn't get it, he maneuvers around it. That shows you what corrupted him. Joker says, I'm not a schemer. I don't make plans. But that's a lie. The beginning mm -hmm. of the movie shows you just how good he is at scheming mm -hmm. and what an accurate knowledge he has of criminal psychology. He mm -hmm. doesn't just lead a gang of thieves, which is some kind of model of justice. He also reduces it. Mm -hmm. He manages to get it to self-destruct. Mm -hmm. So he is a schemer. He lies to Dent, but there's a reason Dent believes that. He already has learned to want something fairly close to what Batman and Joker want. They also want to beat people up, to destroy people, to get a kind of revenge. It just seems that Harvey was way too conventional to live with it in the way that Joker and Batman can live with themselves. He believed too much in being able to secure the law without putting himself or his loves at risk. Mm -hmm. He really did believe he could be a white knight. Mm -hmm. Well, the scene and, towards the beginning where a gun is pulled on him in court and he disarms the guy. He's just so cavalier about it. Yeah, he probably he feels he's above not only moral reproach, he's above being hurt. Mm -hmm. Whereas he learns the, the tragic lesson. You learn by yeah. suffering. The difference between Batman and Harvey is that Batman doesn't presuppose he understands the future of his own experiences. Mm -hmm. He tries his best, but then you live with the consequences. Whereas Harvey is already living in his mind in a world where he has conquered crime. I think, I think that's fair. As but though he's the guarantee of his own happy ending. He's the sufficient mm -hmm. condition of his success mm -hmm. because of the purity of his intentions. And his powers as well, right? He's, he's very proud of himself. I think for Batman, what's important is not so much who Harvey Dent really is, but what Harvey Dent represents. What, yep. what he symbolizes. Yep. So we're talking before about hope. Right? Yes. Harvey symbolizes hope. He symbolizes the possibility of just unselfish goodness. Our good overcoming evil. 
And for Batman, that hope is very, very important because he recognizes that ultimately fear cannot be the only pillar of the social order. I mean, people have to believe in the goodness of the social order. And so people like Harvey Dent are very important. Joker recognizes that also. And so that's why for Joker, it's so important to destroy Harvey morally. That's what this contest over the soul of Gotham is about. Yeah. Hope and fear are supposed to put a psychological underpinning to the distinction between legitimate and illegitimate, lawful and criminal. Mm -hmm. You can make everybody good, hopeful, and law-abiding. The question is whether you can separate the lawful and the criminal in a fairly sensible, realistic way. Now, what Joker achieves in destroying both Rachel and Harvey, he has destroyed both the private and the public life of Batman. Mm -hmm. The weird thing is he destroys the private life of Batman by accident. There is something at the core of Batman that he doesn't understand. Believes as well too much in the public stuff. He he knows. For a secret character, he really believes. You get to Harvey, you've got Batman. Mm -hmm. He he never wonders what else is there. You don't think he understands? Well, obviously there is. Batman has feelings for Rachel. I think that's fairly obvious in the scene where he attacks this party where Rachel is. Mm -hmm. Among other clues, Bruce Wayne is there and he slips away and then returns to Batman because from the point of view of Joker, Bruce Wayne is not real and that's taking things too far. Mm -hmm. Bruce Wayne is not the whole truth about Batman, but he is part of the truth about Batman. Well, Bruce Wayne is the mask. That's the interesting irony about Batman. The real Batman is the guy who wears the cowl. Bruce Wayne, the billionaire playboy, is the mask that Batman wears. Sure, but Bruce Wayne is not just the public look of Bruce Wayne, the billionaire playboy. Bruce Wayne is also the lifelong friend of Rachel Dawes. Sure, right. So but Joker a... witnesses Batman going to rescue Rachel. Only after and, he endangers her. Only after he throws her off the roof. Right. right. He had done that to ruin Harvey. He had no idea mm-hmm. that that ties up with Batman. Mm-hmm. Right. But then he realizes, because then yes. he later tells Batman, you know, the way you went after her, you know. Exactly. Yeah. He has yeah. learned something as well. He was surprised to th- learn that Batman has a private life. But of mm-hmm. course he does. Mm-hmm. Batman is different than Joker in that you get no sense of any human connectivity with the Joker. Joker That's is literally just about, an agent right? of chaos. His yeah. stories are about the self-destruction of love in the family. Mm-hmm. There's no possibility for human connectedness beyond that because that won't stand the test of chaos. Mm-hmm. So this has been very interesting and I hope our audience can also get a lot of stuff to run with in, in the Batman trilogy. How about we move on to Interstellar? Sure. Okay. Well, I have two chapters in the book. The second one is a co-authored chapter on Interstellar. One of the themes that really interested me in that movie was the importance of family, as you were just mentioning in connection mm-hmm. with Joker. Joker's origin narratives are all about the destruction of the family. And if we think of the family as that setting in which our capacity for connecting with other people is first nurtured, these narratives about the destruction of the family are about the destruction of human connection. Yes. Now, in Interstellar, there is an interesting conflict. Interstellar is a future of mankind where the Earth has been biologically desiccated. There's nothing left to eat almost. And mankind learns fairly quickly that it's either escape to another planet or die. Right, right. So, yeah, so there is this blight which is afflicting afflicting the Earth. There are two plans for rescuing mankind. Plan A involves colonizing other planets with the existing population of Earth. But that depends upon solving the problem of how to utilize gravity to launch a spaceship that would be able to carry the present population of Earth into space. 
If that problem can't be solved, then there's plan B, to colonize other planets with this cargo of embryos and allow the existing population to simply die. The central character in Interstellar is a guy named Cooper, the pilot of the spaceship Endurance, scouting out other possible locations for a human colony. Cooper believes that Plan A is a real possibility. And it's only because he believes this that he's willing to go on this mission. It turns out that he's been deceived. The prospect of solving the problem of gravity is just beyond the reach of scientists on Earth. The information that they would need to do that is locked up inside of a black hole. An interesting question is raised in the movie. What does it mean to save mankind? Is it sufficient simply to save the species, even if it means that every existing individual dies and the future human species has no filial connection with these individuals on Earth who are perishing? For Cooper, that's not a viable option. For him to save the human race means saving those actually existing human beings with whom he has bonds of affection. Yes. Yeah, that's a theme that I explore in this chapter. What is it that confers value on the human species? Does human species have kind of intrinsic value simply by virtue of being a certain kind of creature? Do we have value for each other because we are related? I'll throw out a few notes here. One of them is on science. What mm -hmm. does science teach you, including by learning the limits of your attempt to get more scientific truths out of your inquiries? Does mm -hmm. it teach you that individuality matters to human beings or that it only matters to you yourself? Most of the scientists in this story are horrifyingly reprehensible. Mm -hmm. One of them is willing to wipe out possibly humanity for his own sake. Right. One of them is willing to lie to everybody he knows mm -hmm. because he thinks it's a kind of lie they need. Not so that they can live with it, but so that they can die peacefully up until the horrifying surprise. There's another one, the only one that saved the woman played by Anne Hathaway. Right. Who is deeply admiring of the scientist called Man, turns out to be mm. horrifyingly egotistic, and is the daughter right. of the other scientist who's lying to everybody he knows about exactly. the future of mankind. He's already condemned them, but he's lying. Mm -hmm. And this woman is sort of like her father. And like the other guy, she already abandoned her father. Obviously, filial connections don't matter that much to her. But more than that, there's a man she loved. She also abandoned him. Mm -hmm. Later in the story, she tries to get back to him. The first right. time she faces real death, a scientist dies because of her mistake. Mm -hmm. Mistake in the pursuit of the answer to an equation. Somebody dies because she made a mistake. And her response to that is to say, okay, let's get to this planet where the guy lives that I love. Mm -hmm. you know, I gave up on him, but I want him back now. Finally confronted with mortality, these people, they have different answers to mortality. One of them wants to kill mankind instead of dying himself. This woman is trying to find herself a husband when she sees that somebody died because of her. Mm -hmm. And then there's the old guy who's willing to take the world with him, as it were. Mm -hmm. yeah. Back on Earth, you have this tragic situation you're never told what the scientific cause of the blight is but you are told just like in the greek tragedies that fertility is no longer a possibility for human beings or that in as much as human beings themselves are still fertile almost nothing else in the world is this is you know say the beginning of the oedipus tragedy mm -hmm. it's a fertility plague and of mm -hmm. course that's not unique that uh, brings up this question of reproduction of the reproduction of the species and of individuality the hero of the movie, Coop, is an astronaut, though not a scientist, sort of scientific and as individualistic as the scientists. But when catastrophe strikes and he can no longer be an astronaut and man's dream of spaceflight crashes, he accepts the boundaries of living on a farm, doing something of no intellectual importance. It's not like he's lost his mind or his curiosity about scientific and technical questions, or his hopes, it turns out, that there's a hope somewhere out there in the stars. 
but he wants to raise his family and he's willing to pay the price personally. Mm-hmm. You can see how the world not giving you what you think you deserve, which again is this question of what is your individual worth, can lead to horror not just because of scientists. Cooper's son ends up almost a monster willing to kill his family because part of his family died. A man who has to bury his children could reasonably say that nature betrayed him. Children are supposed to bury the parents, not the other way around. Unlike Mm -hmm. him, his father actually bears the destruction of his own dreams and hopes quite nobly. Mm -hmm. Well, Cooper says towards the very beginning of the film, what you come to understand when you become a parent, you're the ghost of your children's future. Mm -hmm. And it's echoed towards the end of the film when he's back and encounters his daughter, who's now elderly and dying. They have their moment, but then she says, no parent should see their child die. Yep. And tells them to go off to go find Brand, Anne Hathaway's character, who's still on the other side of the galaxy. Again, this recurrent theme of voluntary renunciation of the self. Mm-hmm. Again, there's various ways in which it happens, some in very destructive ways, taking us back to Memento. But even Nolan's very first short film, Doodlebug, is mm-hmm. about a man who's literally squashing himself like a bug. And so there's very destructive ways in which we negate the self, negate our hopes and dreams. Drug addicts, alcoholics do that unwittingly. They don't want to, but they do. So this is about what is man's relationship to the world. It could be a kind of erotic relationship. You could look for something you think is good. Or if that doesn't work out, you could turn to self-loathing. Mm-hmm. which is a kind mm-hmm. of anger, but anger is usually anger at somebody else. Self-loathing is anger at yourself, thinking mm-hmm. that if the universe didn't give you what you thought you deserved, what you really deserve is to be annihilated. One of the things that we've been talking about in connection with some of these other films, the very unhealthy interpersonal dynamics, right? mm-hmm. what Gerard would call mimetic rivalries that escalate to extreme, which are very destructive of the self. But what's interesting, in Interstellar, the theme is not so much rivalry, but love between individuals. I like to think of love in the way that Aristotle described in the Nicomachean Ethics, where the one who you love, the child or the friend, is another self. It's an extension of your self-love. And so it's reasonable for the parent to sacrifice himself for the child, because he's sacrificing himself for that part of himself that is most dear to him. And that's what is meant by the phrase that parents become the ghosts of their children's future. Right. right? That right, having a exactly. child means that you are okay with dying. It is an mm-hmm. announcement of your mortality as much as it is a kind of compensation for it. Mm-hmm. It seems that's why Cooper has to go with Brand and become father and mother, as it were, to the new humans that that world will be populated with. Mm-hmm. It's important for human beings to learn about mortality. Mm-hmm. Parents and children, and so the generations go on. And Love seems to do that education in a way that doesn't lead to horror. On the flip side, there still has to be that backwards remembering, right? Mm-hmm. It's... Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, and that's why Cooper and Brand have to be there. You can't just have these human embryos springing up de novo on this other planet yep. with no connection to what came before. It's also a judgment on the nature of science. You can get genes, you can create new human beings to a certain extent, but what do you do then? Mm-hmm. You, you can't simply create a new species. Mm-hmm. So there are moral requirements to the perpetuation of the species. I'm blanking on the name of the actual writer, but there's a, an African philosopher who's made famous this phrase, to be is to be in relation. And again, in those non-Western cultures, particularly in Africa, you know, the whole concept even of individual autonomy and asserting your rights as an individual, that's a very foreign concept. Identity is as a member of the community. This natural sublimation of oneself as an individual, but in doing so, one finds then one's identity in relation. Yep. 
the fact that Cooper and Murphy's father and daughter have this strange relationship to do with time. He is her father for a while when she's a kid. And then he sees her when she's very old and about to die and he's mm -hmm. stayed more or less the same age. Resist that kind of stretching or snapping by time. Can love really connect people in this family way and make possible something new for human beings? Or if you leave, is it over? Noah's message is that love is the only thing that can reach through time. There's a scientific apparatus that allows it to happen, but the real connection is the fact that Murph in her middle age, in her room, remembering her life as a child with her father, connects her to that bookshelf. And the ghost she thought was there at the beginning of the movie, and now realize that the ghost is her father, thereby bringing all that concept full circle. So this is a fairly Thomistic view of things. The mood of knowledge is love that's simply necessary for human beings to be the rational beings that they are meant to be. It seems the biggest expression of Nolan's turn to a poetic rhetoric that's about giving people hope at the same time as he investigates the underpinning of hope. His early movies were especially investigations about why people want justice, why people think that revenge is the way to affirm your own self when the world slights you. Now he's moved to different kinds of questions where you're supposed to find the future, not to be stuck in the past. And so human beings have to take their humanity with them into the stars if they're going to go. Mm -hmm. And I just want to note, to give credit where credit's due, in our book and in our discussion, we're focusing on Christopher Nolan, mm -hmm. the director, and of course, with some of these films, the only or at least one of the main writers. But one of his major writing partners is his brother, Jonathan Nolan. We could probably easily call the book The Philosophy of the Nolan Brothers. Yes. Um, a quick side note, Jonathan Nolan and his wife Lisa Joy struck it on their own to create the HBO TV series Westworld, in which a lot yes. of these themes are similarly arising. Yeah, that's yeah, also so a very sophisticated show and rewards careful attention and, of course, reviewing. Memento was the first time they worked together. That's correct. Four or five other ones. The Batman trilogy also, collaboration of the two brothers. Yeah, it's, with uh, uh, David S. Goyer as well. And... Exactly. He was involved as well in the first one. And then right. I think Goyer was involved in the Superman movies, which Christopher Nolan helped produce. So you can see how this artistic intention also creates a kind of partnership, a kind of shared vision, an ability to rethink what superhero movies are supposed to be. The Superman movies were also, to a very large extent, about whether love is possible and whether what human beings think they want, the love of a being greater than themselves, is really attainable and in what way. Mm -hmm. Well, that's maybe a discussion for another time. Yeah, I just want to get that we're talking about Nolan's vision. It really is Jonathan's as well as Christopher's. Yes, yes. So, just to keep the conversation pointed on the themes I've been developing, when I watched Dunkirk... Uh, you know, George and I went and saw it together the first time, and then we spent some time over drinks talking about it, and then went back again and saw it with now this theme in mind that had kind of emerged from our conversation. We've been talking a lot about self-sacrifice, the abnegation of the self. What you see, at least what I see in Dunkirk, various ways of dealing with self-identity. Just to give a few examples. So first of all, the whole premise of the film is national identity. The identity yes. of a people overriding individual identity. Soldiers, obviously, in the case of volunteers, sublimating their safety, potentially their lives for the good, in this case, of Britain. The civilians who took their ships and went over doing the same thing. It's also self-protective in the sense that they're fearing a German invasion of the British Isles, so they need their army. On the other hand, you definitely get the sense, especially with Mark Rylance's character, the elder gentleman who takes his private boat over with his son, 
It's about Britain. His son had served and was in the RAF, was killed in the early weeks of the war. And when he sees the plane go down and the RAF pilot is trapped in, he's like, maybe he's still alive. Maybe we can go over and help him. I think to him, yes. he's not just helping an individual. He's helping a British soldier. And, that and national of course, it's identity. the same situation in which his own son died. You can mm-hmm. see why he cares about it so much. Whereas his son isn't at all interested in getting out of their way and supercharging the engine just to try to make it. The father exactly. has to convince him because the son somehow doesn't get it. This is also about your brother because he doesn't take it so personally. He's not as interested. And of course, the Mark Rylance character, by the way, based on a true story, he also says to Killian Murphy's character, the mm-hmm. shell-shocked soldier who just wants to run away to England, he says, there's no running away from this. If we lose our troops there, they will invade us. Mm-hmm. The only other guy who makes the same point is the military commander, the Navy officer played by Kenneth Branagh on the beaches of Dunkirk. Mm-hmm. The civilian and the military are supposed to be connected in this. Sacrificing and helping oneself are supposed to be connected at some level, both in small groups and ultimately, as you said, for the nation. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Killing Murphy's character, the shell-shocked soldier. There's one point where he takes desperate actions that result in the death of George. He's not a member of the family, but you know, someone he's a friend. He's a friend, right. And someone who initially wasn't supposed to go, and then he jumps on the boat and says, you know, I can be useful. My own self-interest doesn't matter. I can be of use. Therefore, I'm going to go. And as a result, makes the ultimate sacrifice. But with Killian Murphy's character, Mark Rylance's character is very forgiving because he realized this is not himself. He would not be acting this way. And he tells his son he may never regain his self. And there's an interesting moment at the very end of the film when they're finally unloading on the docks. Mark Rylance turns and he sees Killian Murphy's character morph into the crowd and go away. The shot is almost exactly like the shot at the end of Nolan's early film, Following, where you have the character of Cobb, who's, again, this Socratic gadfly character, actually shades the Joker. Yes, One sir. of the things in Following is you're never really sure whether Cobb is real or not, or just an invention in the mind of the young man. But the point is Cobb just merges into the mist. He's not fully a real person, you know, whether he's physically real or not. He's just this mirror for the protagonist, the young man in that film. Literally, Killian Murphy's character, he's lost his personhood. He's not real anymore. That scene also includes another startlingly Nolan-esque touch. Mark Rylance's character's son, who had been very angry at the Killian Murphy character because he caused the death of the boy, learns to not put that on his shoulders. Mm-hmm. The Killian Murphy character asks him before he leaves, is George all right? And he says, mm-hmm. yeah, he'll be all right. Mm-hmm. This yeah. is a truth with which there is nothing useful to do now. It would completely crush that person to be told that in his moment of mad fear, he cost a life. What kind of group of people could live with thinking that you owe your life to taking the life of somebody else? Survival equals cannibalism almost. Mm-hmm. That's uh, Yeah, it's interesting that in a lot of Nolan's other films, he deals with the destructive consequences of lies. Mm-hmm. And here we have a lie that arguably at least is salutary. Mm -hmm. As you said, there's no good purpose that could be served by telling the truth. Yep. So what did you think about the soldiers on the beach and the story of those kids? So there I do think we have the opposite dynamic going on. Now at this point, they are just trying to survive by every means possible. And so it's much more individualistic. I need to survive. And that desperation... Although even there, then they form little bonds of friendship. A French soldier who, again, is lying in order to save himself. 
And it's unclear whether he killed the British soldier to assume his identity or he was already dead and he just took his clothes and then buried him. Was he burying him out of respect or was he burying him to cover up what he did? Yeah, no that's idea. ambiguous. Just yeah. like the two, the English soldier and the French soldier, they're running with this wounded man on a stretcher and they managed to get him on the ship. That seems pretty heroic. Up until it turns out that they also want to use that to save themselves by stowing away. Another exactly. example of moral ambiguity. Mm-hmm. And then the French soldier turns out to save a lot of these people who are trapped in the hull of the ship as it sinks. Mm-hmm. It takes great personal risks to do that. It's quite heroic. But he wouldn't have been there had he not done immoral things to get on that ship. Both of them try so hard breaking orders and every rule of decency by a mutual obligation with every other soldier on that beach. And what is their reward? They're almost killed in a sinking ship. Mm-hmm. So taking your fate in your own hands and putting your own self above others turns out to be not such a successful endeavor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's an interesting contrast going on between those who are willing to sacrifice others in order to save their own skin and those who are willing to risk their lives to save others who are perfect strangers. I guess one of the questions we have to ask, are we dealing with different kinds of people here? Are there people who sacrifice themselves and people who sacrifice others, good and evil? Are we dealing with human nature, which shows itself in different ways, in different situations when presented with different incentives? Mm -hmm. And I, I think I incline to the second view. I would agree with that. The other thread of the story I haven't talked about yet is the dog fights in the air. You've mentioned the living with yourself when you've caused the death of someone, even if it's an enemy in war, still affects you. Tom Hardy's pilot character, he causes the most on-screen deaths. Yes. One-on-one. There's lots of people getting blown up by bombs and everything, but he personally shoots down several planes. He's taking a lot of death on his shoulders. Of course, it's his job, and he's fighting, again, this faceless and nameless enemy. You never see them, except for a very shadowy blurry at the end where Tom Hardy's being taken captive. They never refer to him as the Nazis or the Germans. It's always the enemy. And that's already something that helps make fighting a war easier, is where you dehumanize, depersonalize the other. Well, I thought that that part works the other way around. We live in a situation where whenever you don't like somebody, you call him Hitler or Nazi, and that's the end of that. Right. Whereas that's utterly avoided in this case. The word German is used when the soldiers are in the boat, and they notice that one of them, the Frenchman, isn't talking, and they say, you know, what if he's a German? And then that's another situation where you see how people insisting on their own identity might just be willing to build their survival on human sacrifice. So one minor correction, Harry Styles' character uses the term Jerry. Again, a slang term. He's using how the British conceive of them. Oh yeah, and when he turns out that the guy's a a Frenchman, he calls him a frog. That's the (laughs) word for Frenchman. Yeah. But interesting part in that scene that I didn't catch the first time I saw, but the second time, again, talking about these bonds that form within these dire circumstances, when they're saying that, okay, someone needs to get off, we need to get rid of the weight, and at first they're about to, you know, shoot and get rid of the Frenchman or force him off the boat, the other character, Tommy, says, how do you know even one person's going to make a difference? And one of the uh, Scottish soldiers says, well, you better hope so, mate, or you're next. And then Harry Styles looks at him and says, that's the way it works, mate. We're the outside, you know, they're a unit. They're all Scottish. This is a Scottish unit. We just tagged along with them. All three of us are potentially expendable because we're not part of the group. Yes. And you see that the danger of the situation might make people so desperate that they would do horrifying things to each other. But again, the Frenchman, when he was in a situation where all these Englishmen were trapped in the ship and he knew it, he didn't jump the ship. He went and helped them. Mm -hmm. He risked his own life for the sake of their lives as Mm -hmm. the ship was sinking. So you see that in similar or identical circumstances, they don't all react the same. Right, going back to George's point that being responsible to the circumstances. To complete my thought then about Tom Hardy's character in the air, 
he knows he's running low on gas. He sees the bomber coming that's going to bomb the ship. Eventually, you see, it takes a lot of time, actually. I realized on the second view how much time he takes sitting there in his cockpit, looking at the bomber coming, thinking about his fuel, and he finally turns around and does it. But it's actually a very human thing because he does it too late. You'd almost expect the heroic, he turns around, gets the bomber in time, the bomber goes down. No. He went back and forth in his mind so long. By the time he gets back and shoots down the bomber, the bomber's already dropped his bombs, fuel's leaking. When he finally shoots down the bomber, it causes this huge fire that kills people. It's not this standard, pat, heroic, oh, he had this moral struggle and he made it back in time and saved the day. I That's mean, true. You see throughout the movie that neither skills nor good intentions nor the combinations are necessarily enough. Right, exactly. And, uh, the guy is continuously throughout the movie calculating how much fuel he has left and writing it down in chalk on his ship on the dashboard. But eventually he decides to go this other way. Mm -hmm. And you see him as another one of these great images that's fairly subtle. After he's running on fumes, he's trying to land and he learns almost when it's too late that his train, his landing gear won't deploy. And he just keeps cranking that lever without giving up up until it's good enough to land on. Even though he knows he's probably this going to get captured. Oh yeah, he, he knows he's going to be captured. First thing he does is burn the ship. Right, he's not right. at all sentimental about it. And that's the one heroic shot in the movie. You see him silhouetted against the sunset. And the first time you see Tom Hardy's face in the whole movie for all of 15 seconds or so, mm -hmm. it's amazing. Up until then, he too had been faceless. Mm -hmm. He just got his name over their comms, Farrier. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing that made him who he was. And he'll probably end up being listed as missing in action, and no one will ever know unless he survives yep. the war. And his, his whole side of his, There's no upside to this. It's not like Britain is going back to Europe to fight. He knows that everything he does is helping other people run away. Nobody's going to come looking for him. Right, right. His only affirmation is that last pass over the men on the beach, and they're all cheering him because he had shot mm -hmm. down another plane was about to dive bomb them. That's all he can take with him in yes. terms of any affirmation of his sacrifice. Yes. One thing I wanted to mention about the cinematic aspect, these three interlocking stories that only overlap in reality over one hour are intercut in such a way to put that pilot at the climax. Mm -hmm. right. right. A lot of the movies about how perishable flesh is, how fearful men are, how little relief there is, and then you have throughout, from the opening titles to the last speech, you have this frame of Churchill's talk of deliverance. The guy who delivers the deliverance is that pilot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The conclusion is the greatest show of heroism in the story. You have degrees of heroism and villainy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's right, yeah. Yeah. It's far more hierarchical, let's say, than it would seem at first mm -hmm. sight. Well, I think that concludes our discussion. We've gone through 17 years, or actually 20 years, of <laughs> Nolan movies. Let's maybe do this again, talk about some of the movies that are not so famous. Sure. Yeah, it's, uh, okay. it's been a great conversation, and I'm sure our audience will love it. So thank you again for joining me. Well, thank you for, for inviting us. Good luck with us. a new and, book um, where you'll be writing about both Nolan brothers. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And if your audience is interested in learning more about the philosophy of Christopher Nolan, we have a book with that title. <laughs> yep. So published it's by Lexington available Press. on Amazon, or get your local library to order it, or ask yeah. through your college. It's a you bit know. pricey, and I think for most people it might be easier just to get the local library to order it. But if you're interested in Christopher Nolan, I think that you will find a lot in this book that you'll find quite thought-provoking. 
and a lot well beyond what we've had time to yeah. talk about today. Yeah. Yeah, we're, and we're just scratching the surface here. Yeah. And remember, so, this is a companion that will last you a long time. You can read up on whatever move your theme whenever you get the time to watch it again, just to get more out of your viewing experience. It's worth the investment. <laughs> well, you have had the chance to show people what they're in for, if they're curious, so I hope that helps. Thanks a lot again, and uh, have a great day. Thank you, Tim. Bye-bye.